my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And this month's, this episode begins our sellout month, where we talk about subjects that people can instantly recognize when they look at the title of the episode. That's right, folks. We want your clicks. It's time to ascend to the next level of podcasting. Uh, we specifically want your Patreon subscriptions, <laughs> not just your clicks. <laughs> we want your clicks as well. Actually, yes, it would be nice to have some more money. Let's get some more money rolling in. So this week, we decided to talk about Meryl Streep, a subject that we've never done because I don't want to speak for both of us, Will, but probably neither of us found very exciting. Yeah, so I'm not going to come here with the contrarian take that she's bad, okay? And I'm not even going to say she's overrated. She is good. In fact, I think in the movies that we watched this week, she's consistently very magnetic. She just gets trapped in bad movies or mediocre movies. There are two reasons why I've never been excited to do a Meryl Streep episode, and the first one is that filmography. You look at it, and obviously there are good movies in there. There are even a few great ones, I think. I'm a big Bridges of Madison County fan. However, most of them are prestige films. They are white elephant art. And you you get to see the white elephant art of every decade, or at least that's the way they seem. And so you see a movie like Sophie's Choice, and it's like, oh man, that, that looks like uh, Oscar bait. Let's go through the movies that are good. I'm just looking real quick at her filmography. You have stuff like Death Becomes Her. She's great in that. You already mentioned Bridges of Madison County. She's excellent in adaptation. Just looking over it, looking at all these posters, it's like, I don't really feel like watching any of these movies right now. It's not award season where you feel pressed to watch these movies if you want to be in any kind of conversation because, of course, Meryl Streep was nominated like she is every year. Well, you know, I think on this podcast, we have often gravitated to the high and the low. We've often gravitated towards, you know, hard art cinema as well as the lowest of low culture. And Meryl Streep falls right in the middle there or in the upper middle. She is middle brow cinema. I'd be fascinated to know how much of that is calculated on her part or if she's just following her taste or the people that will pay her price tag. I think probably a combination of all three. I think if she wanted Isabel Huppert's career, she could have it. She can do anything. And certainly more than any actor, more than any female actor in particular, she has had the power to be the author of her own career. And you look at the filmmakers she works with and you're like, oh, these are all good filmmakers, but the movies, oh boy, even Mike Nichols like at his dreariest <laughs> is when she decided to, you know, hook herself to his train. Yeah, I mean, I like Alan J. Pacula, or Pacula, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, I I like him most of the time. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, I said that there were two reasons why I didn't gravitate towards a Meryl Streep episode. The other one, I think, has something to do with her screen presence. And again, I don't want to underrate her, but I would like to read to you, Justin, two quotes from two movie reviews for Silkwood. I think both of these will be very relevant. I assume one of them is a Pauline Kael quote. Let's not spoil the surprise. <laughs> Let's spoil it. Okay. First one is by Roger Ebert. He says, Silkwood is played by Meryl Streep in another of her great performances. And there's a tiny detail in the first moments of the movie that reveals how completely Streep has thought through the role. Silkwood walks into the factory, punches her time card, automatically looks at her own wristwatch, and then shakes her wrist. It's a self-winding watch, I guess. That little shake of the wrist is an actor's choice. There are a lot of them in this movie, all almost as invisible as the first one. Little by little, Streep and her co-actors build characters so convincing that we become witnesses instead of moviegoers. And now, here's here's Pauline Kael, who is, or was, 
Meryl Streep's most consistent detractor. She writes of Silkwood, As the heroine, Meryl Streep tussles her shag-cut brown hair, chews gum, and talks with a twang. She eyes a man, her head at an angle. She has the external details of oaky bad girl down pat, but something is not quite right. She has no natural vitality. She's like a replicant, all shtick. Now, I think both of these quotes are right. I would say, though, that, you know, by qualifying that a lot of Meryl Streep roles are middle brow, I think that's also an energy she exudes <laughs> just as a person. Well, can I read one more Polly and Kale quote that was alerted to us by a listener that I think is is interesting and maybe illuminative. The first line of Polly and Kale's review of Postcards from the Edge was, Meryl Streep just about always seems miscast. She makes a career out of seeming to overcome being miscast. Let me tell you, I thought about this a lot while watching both Silkwood and Sophie's Choice this week. Is it because she seems above the material? Is that like a misogynist look? It's like, look at her. She looks so haughty. That's a good question. I'm not quite sure. I mean, what I do know is that she's developed a reputation for being like the consummate actor. She does all the research. She works hard at learning how to play the violin or speak in a Polish accent or everything. And every gesture is precisely calibrated. She's kind of like, maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but she... I think Laurence Olivier was kind of like this, you know, they they're very cerebral, and they think the performance is through and then they present these very meticulous, well worked through performances. And I think sometimes in the case of Meryl Streep, sometimes it can be like the performances are almost too good. (laughs) They're almost like too thought through. Like when I see the Meryl Streep movies, the famous ones, I'm always acutely aware that I'm watching Meryl Streep give a capital P performance. And I don't I don't always feel that way about like Isabel Huppert or Robert De Niro or someone like that. And I think there's many elements that go into it. It's the kind of big box of technical tricks that she brings to it through all the preparation that she does. I also think it has a lot to do with a lot of the times the films that are surrounding her are so kind of mediocre (laughs) that she pops in them. I think that's a great point because some of these movies are basically Meryl Streep vehicles. Sophie's Choice is an Oscar exploitation movie that has been made it, like, it feels like it's been reverse engineered to be like, look at this performance. Look at how great this performance is. Give an Oscar to this performance. Like, Alan J. Pakula, or Pakula, sorry folks, I don't know. He basically, in that movie, just parks the camera in front of her in scene after scene, and he doesn't razzle-dazzle you with style. I don't think he really creates even a unified style around the movie. It's basically just this kind of, like, boring movie with an amazing performance that almost feels like her performance that movie almost feels to me like when the camera parks in front of Jackie Chan and Jackie Chan does a great stunt and you you look at it you're like wow that's an incredible stunt you didn't even notice that the tear was forming at her eye and is rolling down at this particular point which is maybe not the point you would have expected it to but that means it makes an even bigger impact than it would yeah so again like you look at Sophie's Choice she is kind of amazing in it it, it is an amazing technical performance I think you you're right, Justin. I think I would have been more excited for this episode if she was in better movies. <laughs> I mean, Sophie's Choice, let's talk about it a little bit, because we both sat through all of its 151-minute running time. Yeah, yeah. Is there a movie that it's probably watched so little to this day, but Sophie's Choice, I mean, it was a novel before this, has come into our lexicon as a expression that means making a choice that is very difficult? It's an iconic movie, and I think it's a movie that is still like, I think if you were to just ask people, 
uh, again, maybe I'm making this up too, but I feel like if you would ask people, people would just sort of say, oh yeah, Sophie's Choice, that's supposed to be good. Oh, did you know that it was about just a virgin guy that wants to be a writer that moves in with Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein? And oh boy, he wants to have sex with Meryl Streep so bad. Yeah, now this I didn't know about it. Uh, the, the real star of this movie is Peter McNichol. Everybody loved them from Ghostbusters too, And uh, the Mr. Bean movie, who can forget his performance <laughs> yeah. in that? Ah, he's Mr. Bean's foil! Anyway, he's a young writer. Uh, he's in Brooklyn. Brooklyn in just the years immediately after the Second World War. He becomes friends with the titular Sophie, and she has a dynamic, boisterous, perhaps mentally ill lover played by Kevin Klein. Uh, they seemingly are doing Tennessee Williams play <laughs> as they come in, where it's like, you've been drinking too much, stop oh, it! Oh man, I mean, the two of them together, I mean, he is very, I, his performance isn't really like hers. Hers is really like mannered. Oh, Kevin Klein is playing at the back seats in this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like extremely like capital C charismatic in the role and, and very hammy. Uh, but I mean, the two of them Again, like, I think this is basically a bad movie, and I think both of their performances suffer for it. I think they would both be better in a if they gave these exact same performances in a better movie. But, I mean, if you're going to watch this movie, at least you have these two hams to look at. Yeah, but don't watch it. You don't need to watch it. There's other stuff that you could check out. Anything else, unless you're like... Uh, heroically trying to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies. Was she? Did she win for this one? She did. Of course she did. And you know what? Maybe she even deserved it. I mean, it's you look at that performance, you look at everything she does in this movie, the accent, uh, all the little facial expressions she does, the tears, as you said. And the kind of control that she has over the stories that she's telling. Like, the titular choice happened so undramatically in the movie. You're like, oh, I guess that's it <laughs> near the end. Well, yeah. I mean, I wonder what it would have been like to have seen this movie in first run and to have not necessarily not necessarily known what the Sophie's choice was because I mean obviously we're spending the whole movie waiting for it mm -hmm. <laughs> the choice is Kevin Klein or this dweeb here who's a virgin <laughs> which one will she pick uh, I will say that I did resent this movie a little bit just because it's kind of so mediocre and I mean this is a movie it's a movie about the Holocaust it's like this is big serious subject matter and basically i think it was only made it, it, as i said it's an oscar exploitation movie it was made to be like let's win oscars let's make a prestige movie i don't think there was actually a lot of real genuine feeling for the material in this alan jay is in the corner counting money from a bag that has a dollar sign on it while making this movie <laughs> uh, yeah action action <laughs> whatever i mean we also watched a movie that came out the year after sophie's choice which was silkwood uh that was helmed by our favorite director, Mike Nichols. I think it's worth pausing on what a run she had in the late 70s and the early 80s. It's like The Deer Hunter, Kramer versus Kramer, Sophie's Choice, Silkwood. I mean, maybe some of these movies don't hold up all that well, but could you just imagine living in the era of Meryl Streep? Well, she would be omnipresent. I think that's why a lot of people turned against her for that reason, because she was the actor who won awards and was the best at capital a acting so i liked silkwood better did you i i like silkwood a lot more as well but it still has that kind of like mid-tier mike nichols i mean i know that he was committed when he was making the movie but it feels so much in prestige mode so the film is based on the true story of karen silkwood who worked at a plant in oklahoma making plutonium rods for nuclear reactors the plant is involved in this major contract but it's running behind so many employees are working long overtime hours and more than that 
Silkwood begins to suspect that the bosses are forging the safety records and cutting corners and, you know, a lot of workplace safety issues that are being suppressed. And she becomes an advocate for employee safety. The union sends her to Washington to testify before Congress, but it becomes clear the union is not really interested in fighting this. Her co-workers are similarly reticent because... If what she reveals causes the plant to close, that means they're all out of a job. And also, life is no picnic in her home life. The two other major characters are her on-and-off-again boyfriend, Kurt Russell, and her friend, uh, Cher, who is gay, and who we and Silkwood suspect are uh, in love with her. And so, unlike uh, Sophie's Choice, there is a lot of great actors surrounding Meryl Streep in this movie. And every time that they're on screen, it kind of sizzles. But, like Sophie's Choice, it's going to a predestined end, because famously, uh, this person mysteriously died on her way to deliver some documents. And I feel that you're just kind of waiting for that to arrive. And I don't know if it reaches the kind of ecstatic moment that it seems to want to be driving towards. So I found the movie basically compelling. It's an interesting story. I also think Nora Ephron wrote it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of complexity in the story. The characters are complex. I think the Silkwood character's evolution through the movie. She starts as this kind of uh, brassy, wacky dame. <laughs> yeah, that people perceive as kind of ditzy and out of it. Uh, and then over over the course of the movie, she becomes, you know, a, a very fierce advocate for uh, worker safety. And then, you know, later in the movie, she become, you know, her relations with everybody in the movie become very difficult and complex. So that's interesting. The movie does have a bit of that prestige heaviness to it you feel it you're just kind of you know wandering through this person's life as you're waiting for that big climactic incident to happen whether it her being detected through radiation and it just kind of piling up until she has to do something about it so i think pauline kale again to go back to where is kind of right with meryl streep here like she's a very um I don't know. I, I'm not even quite sure what I'm arguing because she is very good in this movie. Uh, again, she she does, as Ebert says, she does the thing with the watch, you know? <laughs> What's fascinating about uh, the performances in this movie is that Cher is kind of stripped of all the things that we associate visually with her. Like Mike Nichols very specifically uh, made her change her hair. She has no makeup in the majority of the film. And that gives a different perspective on her as a character, while Streep, like Kale said, is full of shtick throughout the movie. Yeah, and I'm not quite even sure. I, I think that's exactly right. And they do come across very differently. In a way, I kind of would have liked to have seen Cher in the Silkwood role. Yeah, Cher has a kind of almost unknown quality to her as a performer in this film, while Meryl Streep is putting herself out there in a way that like, look, I'm playing a different character than I've been associated with up till now. Aren't I different in the way that I'm being portrayed? And it's like, yeah, you are, but... It's still Meryl Streep at some level. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm not sure how much of this is just a reaction to both of these actresses' star personas, how much of it is reacting to baggage that they bring, and how much of it is indigenous to the performances that they give. But, I mean, 
what can you say? Stars have star personas. Stars have baggage. And I think that was something that I read another critic, perhaps it was Pauline Kael, say that unlike most big stars, you know, a Tom Cruise, that they have their persona they bring into the film. Meryl Streep is oftentimes trying to fight against that, but that is just highlighting how she's trying so hard not to be Meryl Streep, even though she may be doing it incredibly well, which is a weird kind of hypocritical thing to state. Can I just say, though, I think there's... I think this might actually be central to what's interesting about Meryl Streep, might be central to what's magnetic about her, because I actually do think there are a lot of times in Silkwood when she is magnetic. And I think that cognitive dissonance, that slightly unreal quality, the fact that she's her performances are so natural, they're so well-researched, they're so thought through that they become almost uncanny. I think that's something that people gravitate to or they they respond to when they see her in movies Mm -hmm. and i think that what she does is very easy to qualify as acting (laughs) like how do you define good acting it's so difficult is it naturalism is it just you know the act of doing something dramatic on screen that you're like wow that is very moving which meryl streep does very well you know it's all up in the air but you can look at her and say well she's doing those things and she's good at them tom cruise is very magnetic on screen there's like a fake naturalism there's a failed naturalism to tom cruise there and and that that is where stars lie you know in that slightly unreal quality and i feel like meryl streep has something similar from a different angle i mean she's coming at it wanting to be more naturalistic wanting to disappear into roles more than someone like tom cruise or a better example jack nicholson does who she worked with a bunch of times. Nevertheless, she still has that same uncanny quality that someone like Tom Cruise has. Yeah, she never went the route of, uh, you know, dolling herself up in makeup to play these roles and to get lost in them, except for, of course, Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat, where she dons brown face in the movie. So I didn't actually see that one. But, you know, I think in adaptation, I don't have these kinds of qualifications about her performance in that. I feel like she comes across as very real and very unaffected in adaptation. But what's interesting about adaptation is that she plays an upper crust character that then gets involved in, you know, a whole environment that she's not used to. So there's that transitional point that allows that kind of strain of believability. Well, I mean, in adaptation, I think she is definitely like, yeah, she, she, she does play a higher class character. And I just find it easier to accept Meryl Streep for a lot of reasons in a role like that. And it comes back to what Pauline Kael was saying about so much of her career overcoming being miscast. We talked about the Bridges of Madison County in a Patreon episode a while back, and she's excellent in that movie. I love her in that movie. I love that movie. So we also watched She-Devil, which was part of a streak that supposedly came out of the fact that people told Meryl, it's like, you can't do comedy. And she was like, and she went, I'll show you. So we get Susan Seidelman's She-Devil co-starring Roseanne Barr. Yeah, I was excited to see this one because Susan Seidelman was an interesting filmmaker. She came out of the New York underground. She made a movie called Smithereens that I think you can watch that on the Criterion channel now. You know, it's a great low-budget independent film. And She-Devil was... Uh, this was a bit of a flop, right? Am I making that up? Uh, I assume so. I think that critically it was a little bit uh, reviled upon its release. Well, anyway, this is a very stylized comedy featuring Roseanne Barr as the wife of Ed Begley Jr. Ed Begley Jr. plays a high-powered accountant who starts an affair with Meryl Streep, who plays a Jacqueline Susan-like romance novelist or, or a Danielle Steele type. They're living it up in Meryl Streep's big mansion, and Roseanne Barr starts a big campaign of revenge to sink both their lives 
And the movie has this very hyper-stylized, almost Pee-wee's Big Adventure-ish visual t- style to it. As amusing as the film is, it's not particularly funny, though. <laughs> I don't know if I laughed a single time during this movie. I kind of liked it, though. What I was thinking as I was watching it is it's weirdly structured, almost like an anecdote someone is telling you, that you're getting this very long period of time in these little moments, that those moments don't really get a chance to play out in the way that comedic set pieces usually do so there isn't really anything that builds to a laugh it's mostly like oh yeah that's amusing what's happening on screen right now it's structured as roseanne has this list of five ways that she's going to destroy her husband's life and you see all five of those ways and they all play out in a way that is not surprising and also in a way that's not like super clever either and not shocking either so you're not like oh my gosh i can't believe she did that it's like no it's a very methodical plan that she follows through with and at the end the plan is successful there you go but you know i like the way the movie looks i like the general tone of it i also like the three central performances meryl streep especially people said she couldn't do comedy well she's really going for it in this one it's a really uh over the top performance And I think we get just enough of Meryl Streep in the movie that Roseanne has a much more deadpan performance in the movie, much more uh, toned down. So when you do see Meryl Streep, I think the proportions of the two of them are just right that you don't become tired of Streep's over-the-top performance. Well, Streep's performance is in such a high register the entire time basically freaking out and she's like an upper crust writer so she's running headfirst and all of these terrible things her dog gets thrown off a cliff so she's just reacting to all this stuff which is never quite wacky enough even though that Seidelman seems to like trying to make it as visually interesting as possible and it just comes down to the fact that like it's pleasant Streep is well cast Roseanne works Ed Begley Jr. does his kind of like befuddled man thing but at the end of the day not a lot of laughs yeah I don't know we picked this one kind of hoping that it would be a, a hidden gem and it's it's merely okay but you could do worse i mean meryl streep is playing essentially the same role in death becomes her and that movie's great uh, can we talk about meryl streep's late career which i think is a disgrace <laughs> sorry that's that's too that's too harsh the 90s after death becomes her is just oh what a terrible run remember all these movies guys house of the spirits before and after marvin roomed first do no harm Dancing of Lunasa, One True Thing, Music of the Heart. My God. Well, you remember Music of the Heart because you know who directed it. Wes Craven. Yeah. (laughs) All right. But you want to talk about her late period career. Well, I mean, there's not much to say about it. I mean, in the 2000s and the 2010s, first of all, you got to hand it to her. Obviously, women over the age of 40 have a hard time getting cast in movies. And she has survived and thrived and remained a big box office draw to the present day. You know, I'll just say that some of these movies, my God, I mean, her you know her performance in the post is just canned ham jesus the fact that she starred in the iron lady come on guys what are you doing (laughs) academy award-winning performance i mean i haven't seen it what would i know she was academy nominated for her performance her terrible performance of into the woods the rob marshall stephen sondheim adaptation it's interesting that she didn't get nominated for mary poppins returns i mean (laughs) she's awful in that movie that one scene she's in she is awful in that movie but it's just fun to know that the academy will draw the line somewhere I do have to 
to say she's very good in Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk, which supposedly was mostly improvised on the boat that they were taking while filming the picture. Well, you know, she's definitely, I mean, she doesn't do the kinds of performances that you, she used to in the early 1980s, because first of all, I think actors, as they get older, their range becomes less. I mean, you could see it with Robert De Niro as well. He can't do all the things that he used to do. Just let Robert De Niro sleep. Stop bothering him. Also, I think there comes a point, too, when actors just kind of get more comfortable in their abilities. There's less that they really need to prove. And there are certain of the late period Meryl Streep movies, probably The Devil Wears Prada, I don't know, where she just, she has the charisma, she has the presence in front of the camera where she can just kind of, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Ham it up? Ham it up. Yeah, like, no more research needs to be done. Just turn on that ham and swim in the river of it. Do you have more appreciation for Meryl Streep now? Are you glad we did this? No, not particularly more appreciation. And I don't think I learned anything like watching these movies. Too bad. Yep. Did you, Will? I think it was good to think about a little bit. I think I have a little bit more understanding and even empathy for her style. And uh, I think I have a little more appreciation or at least a way a way to appreciate her more than I used to. I mean, she's very good and she appears in a lot of mediocre films. We said that at the beginning and I, that's the thesis of this entire podcast. That's right. You don't need to tell us that she appears in like defending your life. She's very good. We know. We know. <laughs> you know, she's made good movies too. So, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Charlie Yao. And he goes, hey, Most Important Cinema Club. First, in response to your entirely serious call for sellout suggestions, I recently realized that the same man directed Glory, Legend of the Fall, The Last Samurai, Courage Under Fire, and Blood Diamond, Edward Zwick. All of these are clearly of a piece and similar in many stylistic ways. So is there a notorious case to be made for somebody who has so mastered the middle brow Hollywood epic? Will, you a big Edward Zwick fan? Is there an auteurist case to be made? Yes, there is. But am I the one who's going to make it? No. I saw all of those movies theatrically when I was of age. The Last Samurai, Blood Diamond. <laughs> like, those were big movies. And that guy, he just fallen off the map. He directed the terrible sequel to Jack Reacher. And I assume he's probably in TV land these days. I'm not a huge Edward Zwick fan, but if someone wants to make a case for him, then that's great. He's on Twitter now, and he tells a lot of fun stories that I see every now and then. Oh, well, that's nice. I'm sure he's a nice Now for an actual question. Citizen Kane lost its 100% fresh rating because somebody logged the May 1941 review from the Chicago Tribune. The conversation around it was whatever, but I found it a really fascinating time capsule into what ordinary local reviewers were writing at the time when Kane was still on the cusp of canonization. It made me wonder what the review in Calgary's second largest newspaper thought about Seven Samurai, or Flagstaff's reviewer said about Vertigo. Have you ever looked into what normie critics at the time said about epoch-defining films, or know anyone who has? Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work, Charlie. Well, that's a great question. In fact, I have looked into it. The Toronto Public Library, if you have a Toronto Public Library card, has an excellent resource where you could search the archives for the Toronto Star, which uh, it is, I, I believe, still Canada's largest circulating major newspaper. A few months ago, I looked into the Toronto Star's reportage of Charlie Chaplin's City Lights from 1931. I found a couple of different articles. A few months before it came out in Toronto, they ran an article called City Lights Film Mediocre, Say London and Hollywood Critics. Experts as far apart as London and Hollywood agree, the Chaplin City Lights is not the pantomime sensation that was expected to vindicate the resurrection of the silent film. It later on says, too much sentiment. But then later, when it actually opened in Toronto, they had a review that was wildly positive. 
judging by the continuous laughter, patrons have had little time to note the absence of speech in City Lights. Not a character has spoken a line, although there are sound effects and blah, 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 blah. It's, a, it's kind of a boring review. It doesn't say a whole lot. I mean, all these reviews are really normal. But anyway, that's a long way of saying that, yes, I, I have looked into it and you can find interesting. You, it's fun to see sort of the received wisdom about something before it came out, before the canonization had happened. Yeah, I mean, it can provide context of what was going on and why something may have risen to the top or may have just fallen away. But at the same time, my eyes usually roll off those when I read McFarlane books and it's like, critics at the time thought, I'm like, I don't care. Well, hey, hey, I got one more. This is a good one. Uh, This is the Toronto Star's review of Dracula from 1931. There are more shivers to the lineal foot of film and to the square foot of audience in Dracula than Toronto has experienced in many moons. The man of mystery with his strange passion appeared at the Tivoli yesterday. Dracula is not merely a thrill picture. It goes away back for its beginning beginnings to the legends of werewolves and vampire more than a little superstition of which exists in humans to this day that's just a just a little hint of how spooked and shivered the toronto stars reviewer was of bella lugosi's dracula yeah it's like the train they're like ah (laughs) she's jumping out of the audience as bella lugosi's coming at them but i'm glad that those things are still kept and that you can look back but then i also look at like the books of uh toronto critics that i had from like 20 years ago into the donation bin you go why would i ever read any of these sorry jay scott (laughs) did you take those books from me you're like you're getting of these justice i thought about taking them but then i thought i don't care what jay scott has to say no because unless they have like a radical perspective on it and they don't because most of them just work for the dailies and they're just like you know whatever the wisdom of the day was it's fun to find that to dig some of that stuff up online sometimes but i don't necessarily need it on my shelf i mean it's mostly to go like haha look how wrong they were what were they thinking So thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter is from Kevin Barr. And he goes, hey, guys, I've been having discussions with a lot of my fellow classmates over the last year about the merits of the auteur theory, with a lot of people bringing up very good points about its exclusivity and the fact that the attributes people always bring up that make somebody a auteur are usually disqualified minority filmmakers for a long time. Of course, these attributes, originating from Saris, I believe, are technically proficiency, a certain characteristic running through their whole filmography, which of course would disqualify one-and-done directors, and a certain something that comes from personal relationships with the material of the film. And thought of asking this after re-listening to your episode on Phil Tucker. Does an auteur have to be technically proficient? Do they have to have an extensive catalog with similar themes? And if not, what does make somebody an auteur versus a journeyman, or a hack to use a more negative term? Keep up the good work, Kevin. I don't think I've ever heard the they need to be technically proficient to be an auteur. That was in Andrew Saris's original article, Notes on, on the Auteur Theory. Well, he's full of shit. <laughs> Andrew Saris wrote, To be a great director, you first have to be a good director. That's how he justified it. And uh, yes, I think, I think that's wrong, exactly for the reasons that the letter writer wrote. I mean was Oscar Michaud, the great African-American filmmaker who worked in the silent era, was he technically proficient? No, he didn't have any money. He could he didn't he couldn't afford to be technically proficient. There are a lot of people like, you know, is is Andy Milligan technically proficient? Yeah, Ed Wood, any of those guys. Yeah, I mean they're interesting. They have a perspective. Um that's I think that's an outmoded, outdated way of thinking for sure. And do certain characteristics have to run through an entire filmography? I mean, yeah, cuz like if you are are 
present as a filmmaker, even though you're doing other people's materials, uh, stylistic quirks or even the themes that come up through the filmmaking would usually rise. The people that are making those films are passionate about what they're doing. That's true. Although there are certain of those studio directors, those old Hollywood guys who they kind of they're kind of an auteur sometimes. I'm thinking of Phil Carlson, who he's really great when he does his crime movies and his noir movies. But then there are other movies that he made, like The Wrecking Crew with Dean Martin or uh, Swing Parade with the Three Stooges. That's also, I mean, that's beginning of his career and the end of his career. <laughs> and that's why the movies are what they are. I mean, you know, filmmaking like anything is a job, especially back then when you're working in the studio system. So you would do jobs that you probably just wouldn't have that much control over does that make you an auteur if you follow thematically in some of your films yes it does now do i stick by i like the cage cinema people that say that you know whatever you do has value if you are an auteur so it must be kept in the canon i mean sure just not every film has to be good though <laughs> like yeah I, I would agree with that i think what the the kaye guys were right that like the work of an auteur a bad one is often at least more interesting than a good movie. It's like, I have some bad Howard Hawks films to show you guys. Come on, come on. Okay, but it's like that with any artist. I mean, an artist's career is this long communication with the audience. And some of the later stuff can be interesting just because you've been in a conversation with this artist for so long. I'm not going to make a a case for Charlie Chaplin's Accountess from Hong Kong. If there's anything interesting about it, and I think there is, it's those threads that start uh, from the 1910s that are continuing through that movie. So the auteur theory, I think it's always given too much weight. It was mostly created by a bunch of whippersnappers who wanted to uh, draw attention upon themselves. And then it was kind of remolded by Andrew Saris. And it's just not dogmatic. That's the way that you have to approach it. I think the auteur theory is great and I love it. And it's very central to how I view the art form. However, it is it should only be one of many tools in your toolbox. As Bruce Lee said, rehearsed routines will not serve you in a street fight. Well, what do we talk about? No more Bruce Lee. Okay. <laughs> All right. So if you have any other questions or comments for us, you can email us at importantcineclubpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week? Will? Well, we haven't recorded it yet, but at some point this week, Justin and I are going to see the big new movie that everyone's talking about. That's right. We're going to see the new Liam Neeson movie, Memory. And we're going to. But most importantly, <laughs> It's the new Martin Campbell film. Oh, man. I just love a Campbell joint. Uh, do we? <laughs> like... No, we, we don't. We don't. We went to see The Protégé a few months ago. <laughs> but maybe this one will turn it around. Looking at the reviews, no, it won't. But that's what we'll be doing this week. We'll use it as an opportunity to talk about Liam Neeson, someone who has never come up during this podcast ever, I think. So that... Probably not. So check it out at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Next week, what are we doing for sellout month, Will? Sellout month continues with one of the biggest, one of the most iconic directors, somebody who we have never devoted an episode to. That's right, Alfred Hitchcock. We're going to be talking about all of your favorites, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Torn Curtain, Topaz. That's right, we are doing The Bad Hitchcock. What? Hitchcock made bad films, Will? No way. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, he did, he did, I can tell you that. Well, can I just say, I've not seen these three movies. These are three movies I've never seen. Do you want big, long, ponderous, unexciting films? Well, Hitchcock's got your number, Will. All right, can't wait, let's do it. So that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
Well, Justin, this was a big week for you because one of your very favorite filmmakers, one of the filmmakers who led you into cinephilia, who heavily influenced your own films, has come out with his first movie in almost 10 years. And that and that is Mr. Sam Raimi with the film Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So you, as the Raimi head of the podcast... Did you enjoy it? Uh, no, not really. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I can I just say, every year there's a new Marvel movie that comes out, and we hear that this is the auteur one, you know? If you liked Nomadland, well, Eternals is basically Nomadland 2. That's what the early reviews say. With this one, there were a couple of tweets that were going around, people saying- This is a Sam Raimi movie. Is it? If- by that you mean that stuff that you've seen Sam Raimi do before appears in this film, then yes. (laughs) Like the POV shot, close-ups of eyes, all that shtick that he's been doing, uh, you know, that you associate with him appears in this motion picture. Now, the problem with it is, is it deployed in an interesting way in the kind of structure of set pieces or the stuff that he's done before? Nope, it is not, which is the biggest bummer about this film. But Let me be honest, I knew this is what it was probably going to be going in because I've seen the stuff that Sam Raimi's been doing over the last 15 years. We all saw Oz the Great and Powerful. What a bummer that was. Yeah, yeah. Or even the pilot that he did for the Ash vs. the Evil Dead show. He felt just like an autopilot doing all the shtick that people expect from him and him doing doctor strange in the multiverse of madness is not a passion project for the man he's literally pinch hitting for scott derrickson the director of the original film god don't you just find it so so sad i mean sam raimi this guy who was such an original voice being ground up into the marvel machine like everyone else i don't know why he took the job because he can't need money, right? <laughs> like, I think I know why he took the job. It's been 10 years since Oz the Great and Powerful. Surely he has not been idle in those 10 years. Surely he's had a bunch of projects that didn't happen or that, that fell apart. Uh, he's had a million projects. There's a whole Wikipedia page of uh, Sam Raimi projects that have fallen apart. So I think clearly he was like, okay, I got to do something. I got to get back on the horse. The biggest franchise in the world wants me. I'm fine. I'll do and it. And he's coming at it at the worst time when it's so wrapped up in the TV shows, introducing new characters that have no impact on the movie that he's making. I just feel so bad for him having to make this movie. I mean, oh yeah, I feel so bad that he's directing one of the biggest motion pictures ever, but that he's trapped in all of this like continuity that he's freely admitted. He's like, I didn't watch those movies. They're not for me. And then he has to make one of them that is like the most beholden to them than any of them. Like This is not him making Captain America where he could just kind of do whatever he wants to. It like ties in directly to one of the Disney Plus TV shows, which he admitted that he didn't even watch. Oh, God. So I'm, I'm going to see this movie. Do I have to have watched WandaVision to, to understand this movie? You don't need to have watched it. But read a summary of WandaVision or else you'll be a little bit lost about what happened. Oh, God. I know. Like, it's terrible. I think what's sad is that Sam Raimi either doesn't feel he can play in in the smaller leagues anymore or there are no smaller leagues for him to play in. I feel that he was burned by making Drag Me to Hell and that it didn't do well. And that after that, he was like, well, okay, I made the little film. People didn't want that. 
So I guess I have to do a big one. That's the mode that I like working in. So that's the kind of movies that I want to make. And I mean, it's something that he went through earlier in his career after The Quick and the Dead, which was his most like stylistically out there movie that he made a run like a simple plan, which is very good. But for Love of the Game and The Gift, it's like him struggling with trying to do something different, not being that Sam Raimi guy. And it's like such a bummer that he feels he needs to kind of reinvent himself or try to approach it in a different way. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, it filled with so much exposition. It's brutal. I guess I respect that run of like the gift and for love of the game a little more just because I mean, at least he's at least he's trying at least he's trying to be like, hey, you think I'm the horror guy? Well, I can try all sorts of different things. I can do drama. I can do this. I can do that. Whereas this, I mean, just feels unambiguously like a surrender. That's exactly what it is. And it's a lot of like, I'm playing you the hits. Like when you watch Evil Dead 1 to Army of Darkness. You don't see that much of like recycling of stuff. There's so many new ideas being thrown through all of those movies. But then you watch Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It's like, yeah, it's all the stuff he did in those films. There's nothing new here. And that's what's the most frustrating part about it. When people say, oh, it's a Sam Raimi film, it's because, oh, I'm seeing these moments, these beats that he's done before. It's like a big gas guzzler car that has uh, some fins painted on the side of it. And, (laughs) And the fins are Sam Raimi. And you're like, oh, that's a thing that I recognize. I guess that, that's kind of fun. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, I for the first 10 minutes of this movie, I was like, oh, this is fun. This could be fun. And it was one of those like sinking lower and lower into my chair as it was playing. I'm like, oh, no. And the wildest part is that the film feels so cheap at the end. You know how people always complain that the Marvel climaxes are too big and, uh, you know, too overwhelming? Well, here's like the tiniest Marvel climax imaginable. And you're like, why is Sam Raimi the one that's doing this? Also, the CG in these movies is getting so much worse. Oh, it's awful in this film. And this is a film that Sam Raimi's done interviews, which was it was meant to come, I believe, in a different order so they had to rewrite it every day as they were going on because like WandaVision came out first and it wasn't supposed to oh my god it's like what a nightmare for him having to do this and the I mean it made me kind of sad but the only moments of uh, brief joy that flickered across my face was when you could feel Bob Murawski just struggling to make this interesting because he uh, co-edited this picture well hopefully Bob Murawski will be able to use the clout that he's got from making another one of these to restore some other long lost great film there's a taxi billboard that, for Grindhouse releasing that is very prominent in one quick scene oh fantastic I I uh, remember I saw read somewhere online that in one scene there's also a newsstand that has the Epoch Times prominently displayed which apparently is I saw that uh, yeah maybe gonna get the movie banned in China uh, sure well so like Sam Raimi is like it's fairly well known that he leans right and I like to think that was him being like I'm gonna stick it to the commies very secretly and <laughs> I'm gonna very secretly and my bosses won't notice and then it's like oh yeah maybe it accidentally just cost the movie like 300 million dollars in China but Sam Raimi he's like eh I don't really care that kind of anarchic spirit doesn't really exist in his movies anymore and it's such a bummer and I mean he can't this movie's so ugly and there's some violence in it that people are like oh my god there's gore it's wild very Sam Raimi-ish but it feels so much like I said when they announced that he was gonna do the movie that a bunch of previous artists are like what is a Sam Raimi thing let's put it in and Sam Raimi's like yeah 
okay, buddy, whatever you want, that's good. Please, let me make a movie. I guess I could just stay home and watch Evil Dead 2 and get all the Sam Raimi stuff better. <laughs> yeah, it would be better, more committed, more fun. I mean, Bruce Campbell shows up and he's very funny in his one scene. He gets to do some, again, more classic shtick. Didn't spot Ted Raimi, though. Very sad about that. 